episode 53 with writer and scholar Frank B. Wilderson III. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with award-winning writer, scholar, and activist, Frank B. Wilderson III. Frank is known as the godfather of Afro-pessimism, a critical theory that positions anti-Blackness as the antidote for the psychic well-being of society. Did that sound heady? Well, pull out your pen and paper. Frank's curiosity and fearlessness in revealing hard truths takes us on a scholarly journey that will surely require some unpacking. Frank spent his early years in the Kenwood neighborhood of Minneapolis, Minnesota, an all-white enclave where his family was the first to integrate. Despite the racism that bristled just under the surface of his neighbors, Frank's parents, both educators, drilled into him the importance of critical thinking in a world hell-bent on denying space for Black lives to flourish. Although he personally witnessed his parents navigate a world resentful of their existence, it was the murder of Emmett Till that sparked the beginning of his own journey towards activism and understanding his place, or rather lack of place, in society as a Black man. After decades of struggle that included dropping out of Dartmouth College, being spied on by the FBI, and even being intentionally exposed to radiation, Frank turned his rage into an academic life of exploring the Black experience, authoring fiction and creative prose that examines race, society, psychoanalysis, and consciousness. He finally did get that degree from Dartmouth, going on to receive his MFA in creative writing from Columbia University, then spending five years in South Africa as an elected official in the African National Congress. Since that time, Frank has released a series of books such as Incognito, A Memoir of Exile and Apartheid, Red, White, and Black, Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonism, and his most recent book, Afro-Pessimism, which are all available wherever books are sold. In part one of today's episode, Frank reminds us to be fearless in the pursuit of knowledge, even if that knowledge reveals some unhealthy truths. Strap in as Frank takes us on a ride exploring the foundational tenets of Afro-pessimism, along with his own thoughts about reconciliation, activism, and what it means to be a Black individual living in a state of social consciousness and racial reckoning. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram, at Black Imagination. To watch this episode, go visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. You can find this and more content over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the profound Frank B. Wilderson III. So, Mr. Frank Wilderson III, um, welcome. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I I have been waiting for this interview all week. 
Um, and I cannot wait to dive into your work uh, and your life. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so to get started, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Oh, that's easy. To my wife, Anita Wilkins, who I've, we just figured out that, um, that in November we have known each other for uh, 30 years. Uh, I was in South Africa when we met, and then, and then we have been together for 25 years. So great uh, lover, intellectual partner, and a fantastic poet. So yes, it's dedicated mm. to her. Dedicated to Anita Wilkins. <laughs> All right, Anita, come through. Uh, so, I mean, your life, you know, we discussed earlier, is is really novel worthy, and I thank you for for writing about it. But like, right now, like, what's exciting you right now? Right now, what's exciting me is the same thing as what's kind of giving me kind of angst. Uh, uh, I I'm trying to. You know, I was trained at Columbia as a as a fiction writer, and I've I've written basically uh, a memoir, a critical theory book, and a hybrid book of theory and uh, memoir. But my fiction output is tremendous and mainly unpublished. Uh, so if you see uh, those fold those binders back down there, they're blue and black and white. In the mm-hmm. bookshelf, those are all. Um, that's about three hundred thousand words of novel stuff that I'm trying to get together, and so I I'm really working on a new book. Um, it's not like any of the others, and I'm in that what's it called? What writers call the sagging middle, where you don't know what to do, and how do you get out of it? And many people just quit at that point. Uh, but I have a wonderful uh, new agent waiting for it. So I'm going to get it done. <laughs> ah, amazing. I'm excited to to hear about what it is you're thinking. Uh, that's a bit different. Um, but to, to, to circle back to uh, what you're kind of known for, right, is Afro-pessimism. Um, what is Afro-pessimism? I think the easiest way, so I should say, here's, I have something to say about that. But, mm-hmm. but then there are people like yourself, um, young, artistic, intellectual black people who are taking this to a new level and taking it to places that uh, myself and Jared Sexton and the people who thought about this in, you know, uh, 98, 99, 2000, and we never con- considered that, you know. So, so those are two, so the answer to your question is bifurcated. So let's go with mm-hmm. my own answer, which I can say, and then where is it going, which I can only glimmer, but not really say. Uh, you know, um, we were, there were people at UC Berkeley uh, in, I arrived in 97 and I left in 2004. I was doing a PhD in, in critical theory and, and, and uh, cinema, uh, in film theory and critical theory. And, uh, but I, we were also very much engaged in political activism in the in San Francisco, Oakland, uh, Berkeley Bay area. And um, one of the things that we were seeing <clears throat> was that the, the isms that underwrite how activists and revolutionaries think about suffering 
were very important to analyzing black suffering and comparatively um, inadequate. So what do we mean by that? We mean by that that, that one of the major um, isms it would be feminism, and the ones that we were studying were basically based on psychoanalysis, which is to show how this, the, the entity called woman is, um, de- is derivative of man under the Oedipal um, structure of the Western family. So that uh, two things were coming out of this, which I, which I agree with. But then, okay, so I'll go like this. So basically, the feminism would suggest, this feminism would suggest that um, if we're going to ask the question, how do we undo civil society and the state? Not how do we improve the lives of people in civil society in the state, but how do we undo civil society in the state in a revolutionary manner so that lives will be 10 times better, but not just made adjustable to the conditions. That's reform. Okay, so we're interested in revolutionary questions. And we figured out that, that um, whereas <clears throat> it had something to say, feminism, which was based on a critique of Oedipus, which which produces patriarchy. It has something to say about the suffering of, of all women. It is inadequate when thinking about the suffering of, of black women and inadequate when thinking about the oppressive nature of black men. Um, so that was, you know, and Cynthia Hartman is um, really, she's at Columbia, is, is, was a major influence in this thinking in her book, um, Scenes of Subjection, about slavery. And so that began to, trickle in. Then we were studying Marxism, which is to say that the, the structure, why is, why is civil society unethical? Not, not how can we make civil society better, but why does it need, civil society in the state need to be destroyed and a whole new order come into being? These are the questions of revolutionary feminism. These are the questions of revolutionary Marxism. And they had two different ways of going about it. One was saying that in every institutional um, dynamic, what you will find at the core, like a grain of sand for a pearl, is patriarchy. And what Marxism was saying is every institutional dynamic, what you will find at the core, like the grain of sand, is capitalism, the division between the rich and the poor. And so we're saying it's true that most black people are poor and, and victims of capitalism. It's true that black women suffer <clears throat> in a patriarchal, patriarchally dominated society. However, that doesn't really explain the, the essential paradigm of black suffering. It's important, we had these two words, it's important but inessential. And so then we actually began to, under, to understand uh, or to ask ourselves, that was an analytical analysis. And so we began to critique feminism and then at its bedrock, critiquing psychoanalysis and critiquing um, social movements, and at its bedrock, critiquing Marxism by saying these things are true, but they cannot explain what makes black people suffer in total. Because, Mm -hmm. and what we came up with was an interesting kind of understanding, which has always been there. It's been there since the first Arabs... um, uh, uh, snatched the first Africans from the east part of Africa and brought them to the Arabian Peninsula. African people have understood that the destruction of my body, 
the destruction of my psyche, the destruction of my cosmology, the destruction of my family structure is absolutely essential to the production of everybody else's cosmology, family structure, and identity. That these things are symbiosis, there's a symbiosis between these two things, you know. Violence, anti-black violence is not a form of discrimination. It's a necessity that allows everyone else to bloom and blossom. And, um, and so what we realize is we need a non-Marxist, I don't mean non-Marxist, what we need is an is a analysis of slavery that goes beyond Marxism and understand slavery as a 21st century dynamic as opposed to a historical past. And once we hit upon that, we were able to understand why it is in the political organizations in Oakland, Berkeley, and San Francisco that when black people in multiracial political structures start talking about the singularity of black suffering, when black people in those structures start talking about the singularity of black, of anti-black violence, the room wants to shut them down and say, no, bring it back to what's common to all of us. And so, so what Afro-pessimism is, it is an ism that challenges the, the foundational is, isms of revolutionary thought, not to say you are liars, but to say that you haven't actually gone far enough to explain what it means to suffer as a black person, and also to explain how anti-black violence cannot be analogized with, anti, with post-colonial violence, cannot be analogized with the violence against women who are not black. And so that was the key, that's what we, that's all we wanted to do was produce an analysis that said, this is good thinking, but y'all haven't thought about black people well enough. Well, you know what, the 21st century came along and uh, Trayvon Martin was murdered and Sandra Bland and on and on and on and on and on and George Floyd and Eric Gardner. And so people in the community started reading Afro-pessimism and I started doing workshops in community centers around the world. And it then developed into a kind of political dynamic, which we had no vision of. And then artists, uh, I mean, I get emails from composers and uh, painters and musicians about, you know, um, how Afro-pessimism has opened up uh, their imagination. Um, because what happens in art school, and I went to Columbia to do a fiction degree, is they say to you, assume that your protagonist has a stable equilibrium at some point, and then move to the, the, the conflict stage, you know, like colonialism or, or um, the breakup of a marriage, and then move to the redemptive denouement, the resolution. And yet, what I was seeing, which was hard to to actually talk about was that uh, black people's lives are hell from the day they're born to the day they die, which is to say that the unconscious of the collective, the collective unconscious never actually accepts the black flesh as human kin. And that's what it means to be a slave, which is why it exists today. And so, 
you know, and, and so what artists who are black were being told was that your work is too pessimistic. Find a mm. way to have hope at the end. Find a way, you know, I, I mean, it got to the point where here at Irvine, even in the uh, dance department, I had, I was having uh, black MFA dancers come to my classes just to get ammunition to go back to talk to their dance in, uh, professors about why it is that their choreography doesn't end in a redemptive denouement and, that, and that's okay. Mm. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm actually going to read um, a portion from Afro-Pessimism, which I think kind of really um, concretizes everything that you say. Um, and I quote, Afro-Pessimism is Black people at their best. Quote, unquote, mad at the world is Black folk at their best. Afro-Pessimism gives us the freedom to say out loud what we would otherwise whisper or deny, that no Blacks are in the world, but by the same token, there is no world without Blacks. The violence perpetuated against us is not a form of discrimination. It is a necessary violence, a health tonic for everyone who is not Black, an ensemble of sadistic rituals and captivity that could only happen to people who are not Black if they broke this or that law. And, you know, you, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned a lot of things, right? Like, I think even like the theoretical framework undergirding Afro-pessimism, some of it is based on um, early Freudian thought, right? Could you double tap on the structure of, you know, the pre-conscious, the conscious, um, you know, memory and um, the unconscious and how that it really informs this this work? Yes, well, uh, I, I mean, so th thank you for that because we don't throw the babies out with the bathwater. <laughs> Uh, there's, you know, there, there, because, you know, everyone, it's, it's not like there's, there's this anti-black world over there and inside mm -hmm. my head is a, is a pure pro-black world. I mean, my head is as anti-black as the rest of the world. It's, it's, uh, you know, and it's a thing that, that we negotiate every time we look in the mirror, every time we walk into a store, every, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, one watches oneself being watched as one moves through the day. Uh, and one does not watch oneself being watched as Dario. One does not watch oneself being watched as Kaniqua. One does not watch oneself being watched as Frank. You know, the, the, one watches oneself being watched as Black. Because what, what goes through the mind is not, what do I see? Which is what Freud asks in the primal scene. But as David Marriott, who's a Black psychoanalytic thinker who's very foundational to our work. He, he, that's the primal scene for non-black. What do I see? <gasps> My parents copulating. This is the you know. But but for black people, it's what do they see? And this is why we need Fernand, um, right? <laughs> because Fernand knows I am watching me being watched. I don't have the actual apparatus and the luxury to just move forth in the world with open arms and watch. I am always watching me being watched. So, mm -hmm. so in other words, what we're saying is that the, a theory of the unconscious is very vital to what we're talking about. However, the black unconscious, this is another thing, we need to distend the logic, you know, to say, well, what does it mean for a non-black person? Yes, they have an unconscious. Why do they have an unconscious? Because they share 
a, a, a communal lingua franca uh, with the rest of the world. In other words, a, a grammar with the rest of the world, a grammar of suffering and a grammar of being. But to have, to be a person with a grammar of being and a grammar of suffering that is communal, you have to understand where it is the frontier, the, the beyond of people who do not have that. In other words, community can only be formed if you understand who is not in. Mm. And no one talks about it like that. People talk about community as being a kind of add-on of anybody. You know, everybody can be a citizen. But, the, but all words come to meaning through their um, opposites, through what they are not. That's how, that's how value gets, you know. And so what we began to understand was that, that Freud, early Freud, was very instructive and Lacan was very instructive that the uh, the preconscious is the part of the brain that you and I are using right now. You know, I'm I'm talking to you in a way that you're going to understand through a kind of rules, a body of rules that I don't have to talk about. In other words, mm. they're the rules of grammar. Where does a predicate go? Where does a subject go? Where does the object go? But then uh, I also have an unconscious that is not speaking through this way, but it's speaking a completely other language, uh, not, not aligned to logic and only aligned to the pleasure principle. And then Freud would say that, that we all share a, a kind of memory pa paradigm or dynamic. And this is where we, where we made the intervention primarily, because one of the things that that, that last part of the psyche assumes and we're not saying black people don't have memories, but, but in the writing of that, there's an assumption that everyone who is born is part of a kinship structure. And now we have to I be, I kind of be a little detailed here. I'm not saying that I don't believe that I am part of a kinship structure. What I am saying is that no one else believes it. And that produces a highly, highly, uh, a high degree of, of cognitive dissonance as you move, as you move through life. Mm. I am a communal being in my mind. I'm a filial family being in my mind. And in the mind of a white liberal, they're going to say that because they're embarrassed by what is going on in their unconscious. Whereas, say, a Southern segregationist or a Trump person, they're not embarrassed. They have a clear kind of uh, calibration between their unconscious understanding that blackness has to be outside of humanness if I am going to be human, and their mm. pre-conscious thought. They're, in other words, they're willing to say it at the podium um, because they want to go back to when you didn't have to hide it, which was before World War II. So, so in other words, the thing that happened... And Sadia Hartman brings this up in Scenes of Subjection, where she says, slave women got raped in the, in the 19th century, and, they, and some of them went to court to prosecute their masters. The court was in a dilemma, because at that time, the unconscious could speak openly in, in Jacksonian period. Now the unconscious, well, when Trump gets back, the unconscious will be able to speak again. But the white unconscious could speak without, without censure. And what, what the white unconscious said in the courtroom was, I see that you have been violated. The master agrees to that. However, 
because you are an extension of the master's prerogative, which is to say like a horse or a plow or a cow, you actually cannot access the terms of violation. Mm. So you can be cut or raped or mutilated, but you cannot be injured. Injury cannot happen to things we possess. Injury can only happen to kin and quasi-kin, meaning kin, meaning white people, and quasi-kin, as Justice Taney said in the Dred Scott decision, meaning Native Americans. You know, in other words, in injury, you cannot be injured because you do not have any consent to be abrogated. He didn't do anything to you because you don't have consent to be possessed or given, you know. So, so that was, we had to like take psychoanalysis to task for assuming that everyone was part of a kinship structure when slavery absolutely categorically denies that. It's like the, the state trooper in New Jersey said to Asada Shakur when he was beating her in her hospital bed after the shootout on the Jersey Turnpike. She said, I want to see my mother. And he called her the B word. And then he said, oh, so you have a mother? And he laughed. That was, his that was the collective unconscious speaking for the, from the past 1,300 years. So that was... I'll stop there and you can tell me where to go from there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, wearing me out. Like, you know, I, you mentioned something that I, that I think we can also dig into is like, you know, this frame of understanding how and why, uh, you know, Black suffering um, is, is coterminous with Black death. Or social death, right? And um, and the ways in which it is different than those who are, you know, like you said, quasi-human, or I think what you say are, you know, calling them human partners, um, which are those that do not exist, you know, in the space of whiteness, but also make sure that they do not exist in a place of blackness. All right. So make sure is the operative phrase there. <laughs> Because that's what they do. They make sure you don't mistake them for being black. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something we can talk about. So, the you know, these terms, right, like the human, I think human partners, and then the slaves. Like, could you could you break that apart a bit for us and, and you know, really name, name the names? Oh, okay. So, um, so one of the things, so the slave... Uh, our rethinking of the slave was highly informed by Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death. And now when you go to Harvard and you see him, uh, don't tell him I said he's an Afro-pessimist because he has, he has some issues with the way we've hijacked his work. <laughs> but he's an important, he's a mess. I mean, in 1982, he wrote a book called Slavery and Social Death. And he said, look, all the books about slavery that have come before uh, my tome have basically done something that your grade school teacher would not allow you to do. When they, when, when they, you say, when she said, give me a definition, and then you gave an example, or you gave a report of, a, of, of some happening, that's reportage. That's a, not a definition. So he says that most of the books that have defined slavery 
have defined it as uh, unpaid labor, people being in chains, people coming across the Atlantic Ocean in, in ships as cargo, uh, people being whipped, you know, beyond belief. And he says, those are the experiences of slavery. That doesn't explain the actual dynamic. What is slavery when nothing is moving? How do you define it when everything is static? Which is what Marx did in Das Kapital. You know, he said, all the people who talked about economics beforehand have talked about how the economy works. They haven't talked about the structure of capitalism. Mm. And so he then said something that, uh, that we have picked up on. The only way we disagree with him is that, and I don't know how he came to this conclusion, we would say that for black people, this, de- this definition has continued. In other words, slavery is um, <clears throat> general dishonor, which is to say that one is not dishonored for illegal immigration, one is not dishonored for violating patriarchy, one is not dishonored from trying to send white people off their land from South Dakota, one is dishonored in one's flesh which is to say blackness, the slave is dishonored in, one's, in, in his, her, or their being, not in his, her, or their transgressions. Okay, so a dishonorable being in the eyes of the world. The other is genealogical isolation, which we've just been talking about, which is to say that uh, what goes on in the mind of the slave is really um, immaterial to the structure, which is to say that you exist as my possession, not as a family relation, which is, which is you know, everyone understood that in the 19th century because kids are being sold away from parents, you know? Um, so we, don't, we then can understand how the, um, the churning down of, the, the, re, the re kind of, of intensification of slavery in the 19th century where a million people between the ages of 15 and 25 were ripped from the eastern seaboard and sent to Alabama, Georgia, uh, Louisiana, um, and uh, Mississippi. This was, you know, the, the, this was the new slave trade that sent a million young people ripped from the Carolinas in, in, in coffles of tens and twelves into the land area that they had uh, stolen from the so-called five civilized tribes. So they they moved three million Native Americans in a death march uh, from the five so-called civilized tribes out of these areas to to Oklahoma, and then they moved a million black slaves in. Okay, but what was important about this your question and this 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 anecdote is that those black slaves at that time. For the large part, if you read Ira Berlin's book on slavery, they had begun to think of themselves as exploited, hyper-exploited workers, not as slaves, because they lived in huge communal uh, settings with grandparents and grandchildren and aunts and uncles, and they had they were developing skills like carpenters and blacksmiths, and, and sometimes they got partial wages, and they all used to live together in tobacco farms and stuff like that. Well, when white civil society needs something, it just reaches its hands down into the mass of blackness and rips out what it needs, okay? And so, and that's what it means to be a slave. Well, this is the moment of beloved also. We got, in 1988, 
what is happening to Toni Morrison's imagination, among many other things, is that she is sensing this renewal where one million black people in the ages of 18 and 25 are being re-enslaved again, just like happened between 1800 and 1830. So the slave is a relational dynamic, not an experience. And that relational dynamic means that you are always available to the whims of civil society when they need your body for fuel to do other things. Okay? Now, the human, then, is someone who has the opposite, um, the, the three opposite categories of social death. So if the slave is genealogically isolated, meaning has no kin that is recognized, I'm not saying what's inside the slave's mind. I'm saying what's inside the, the mind that you need to be concerned about, as I'm sure you know, is the mind of the someone who has the biggest gun, okay? So I'm concerned about the mind of the LAPD, okay? <laughs> when I lived in New York, I was concerned about the NYPD, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, those are the people got to know who, how they're thinking, because those people tell the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, those are some mm-hmm. honest-ass white people. <laughs> Okay, everybody else is a liberal liar, okay? (laughs) Okay, so genealogical isolation. The human is genealogically secure. Everyone recognizes that human has a relation. As Justice Taney said, I'm sending Dred Scott back to slavery because he is not a relational being. We are trying to improve the... um, anthropological accoutrement of the Native Americans. We're teaching them how to eat with forks and knives, teaching them how to plant and stuff like that. And when we develop them to a greater form of whiteness, then they can become full citizens. So he recognized Indians as relational beings, right? He said, Dred Scott is not a relational being. So the human is genealogically secure, even if some people are colored and white people think of them as having an inferior genealogy, they're still genealogically secure. The human is also, uh, if the slave is generally dishonored, the human is dishonored not generally, but in his, her, or their transgressions against the governing structure. And then finally, um, if the slave is open to the whimsy of others, meaning open to gratuitous violence. The slave lives in a soup of violence because even if one never experiences violence, it's always there to happen to you for no reason. In other words, it's a question question of when it will happen, not a question of whether. And the human is going to get violence when he, she, or they are perceived to transgress. So those are the two Polar opposites. And it's necessary for slavery, as Patterson writes out. Otherwise, you can't think of yourself as a human if there aren't slaves in the mind or in your society. Um, you, just don't, you don't have the tools to understand what does it mean to be genealogically secure if you can't point to someone over there who is genealogically isolated. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't have the tools to what does it mean to be honorable if I do not transgress, if you cannot point to someone who is dishonorable in their flesh, you cannot say, what does it mean to be uh, a victim of contingent violence? If you cannot point to someone who is always already a victim of gratuitous violence, you have to have those bifurcations to develop thought. 
Mm-hmm. In the gray zone is the junior partner. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> and so the junior partner uh, is in a weird position because, um, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, <clears throat> it's like high school kids, right, of all races, know that if you want the most excitement, uh, the best sex, the, great, the greatest movement, the greatest music, you hang black, okay? But if you hang black, you're also going to get off by the pigs more readily, you know? So, in other words, uh, one of Jared Sexton's uh, uh, grad students did a, a kind of uh, round table of three uh, people from all different races at a high school in San Francisco. And what came out was that all those kids found it hyper exciting to be around the black kids at the table, but they also knew that it was a danger beyond cognition, beyond what they could understand. That shit mm. popped off for the black kids that, that for no reason that didn't pop off. That if it popped off for them, they'd at least be able to understand it. So, in other words, um, violence is con- the, 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 the junior partner then is a relational being. But he, she, or they are degraded beings in the eyes of whiteness. And so what happens politically is that very few junior partners say, how can I just jump black? And like, not, not, not from the standpoint of, of, of consumption, but from the standpoint of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they say, how can I get safe? Mm. And that and that causes this tension in multiracial uh, coalitions because what often you have is a not always but sometimes when you're up against it and the shit's about to go down. What I've seen is that black people are just often ready for the get down, <laughs> and other people are like. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Where's that going to lead us? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, words, mm-hmm. black people get excited by the destruction of what's around us. Mm. I mean, because we've experienced our being, our, our being is the totality of destruction. That is our being. As Fanon says, the, 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 the radical deracination of our cosmology, the radical deracination of our filial structure being put in the bottom of ships, being, you know, the, the Arabs would, would, um, would get coffles of black women to practice sex on that their um, marital relations didn't allow them to have until they got married. They would take black boys from Kenya and uh, um, what they called level at the scrotum, which is they cut off all their uh, uh, genitals and scrape their pelvic bone uh, and marched them to the sea. And those who lived, most died along with it, but those who lived became um, uh, uh, eunuchs for harems to protect the chastity of Arab women. And one of the reasons in the Arab literature that you see is that, is that they were doing this to Arabs for a while and to captured uh, crusaders for a while, but then they realized that the, um, the women often asked these eunuchs who are not black, to um, satisfy them through cunnilingus. And they would not ask the blacks to do that. So they, it, it, what I'm trying to say is that everyone had a sense 
of blackness as abjection in their mm. unconscious. And they built a world, a family structure, a political structure, a geographical, geopolitical structure on that. At the, at the bedrock of every society is the mutilation of black bodies. Mm. Yeah, you actually give an anecdote um, in your book, uh, kind of circling back to like your life journey, which we'll we'll delve into a little bit more. Um, you know, an encounter you had with a friend of yours when you were a security guard uh, at an art museum. Uh, your friend Samir, who's Palestinian, and you know, you're in a way you felt like you had a sense of solidarity with your brother, right? Like you both are without homes and, you know, you know, you, you are stateless, he's stateless and he's having a conversation with you about being kind of stopped and frisked, right? About, um, by Israeli soldiers and just kind of like the degradation of that. But then he says something else. He says, there's nothing worse than being frisked by an Ethiopian Jew. And there was this realization that in a way he was not your kin, right? He's not your kin actually. And even his, you know, being a, being a, um, let's just see, tangential partner, um, even in that moment, that, that whiteness, and 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 the suffering under whiteness had space. There was space for that, but that this right, like that there was something even worse. And you began to to see something different. Um, but before we get into your life story, there's one other thing I want to circle back and get to um, when you were speaking about Freud and the unconscious. Um, but really, this concept of identity versus interest. Could you speak a bit about that? Because for me, it kind of blew my mind. Okay. Um, if you're, is this audio or video, or video the, the final product? Both. It, yeah, it'll, both. Be a, it'll be a video and an audio? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, the way I, I'll just say it, and I won't share my screen. I'll just say it. Basically, I, the way I, I help students understand it is that, um, if you think about the psyche uh, in in uh, Freud's early topography, there, I'm looking. There, there's reasons why why I like the earlier topography as opposed to the later topographies. Which the later topography is id, ego, and, and superego. And it's not that I dislike it. It's just that um, in the latter part of his life, he naturalized a lot of psychic dynamics with mm. like the id. And I don't really believe that that's the case. In other words, I don't believe that blackness will always be abjection. Um, but I do believe that it has been abjection for 1,300 years, and so we're not just going to cure it through uh, communal dialogue. You know, an ocean of violence is needed to undo societies because an ocean of violence is needed to produce societies. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, the int pre-conscious interests is like um, it's imagine Costco is a place in the in the brain that has all the language and all the all the things that you can that you can actually say now okay and you will go to that 
with your preconscious will go and you'll get something and you'll speak it, right? And mm-hmm. so that works through, I don't want to get too technical, but that, that works through what's called, um, s- sorry, there's a, there's a lawnmower going next to me. Is it, are you hearing that? Yeah, a little bit, but... Okay, uh, okay. They're, 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 okay. That, that works like um, to what's called secondary processes of signification. And mm-hmm. secondary, pro- so part of the brain works through secondary processes of signification. That's preconscious interest. And the other part of the brain works through um, primary processes of signification. That's called unconscious identification. And so mm-hmm. secondary processes of, of signification simply mean that when we signify through the secondary we speak in ways that other people can grasp. This is what mm-hmm. we're doing here in this podcast, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we don't have to know the rules of that grammar, but we know it intuitively and we, and we do that, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but we can only say a limited amount about ourselves through that. Um, we can only say... You know, I'm 66 years old, I come from Minneapolis by way of New Orleans and Ann Arbor, I like this, I like that, I vote for this, I don't vote for that, or whatever, you know. Um, we, can, we can call ourselves something through identity, we can name identities through the preconscious, but we cannot name identification. So then we have the other part of the brain, which is primary processes of signification, and that's our identification. And that is an engine that does not, that uses language and images, but it is not, it is not um, adhere to the rules that would allow that speech act, which typically happens in dreams or in slips of the tongue or in daydreams, uh, it doesn't allow that to be translatable to somebody else. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can have lunch with the Kaiser at 21 in the year 2030. Can you really do that? No, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> but primary processes of signification don't give a damn. They're just trying to move the brain to what's pleasurable. And mm-hmm. they're using languages and images to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But in moving the brain to what's pleasurable, you can often create unpleasure towards in a later point. So the secondary process of signification come in, they put logic back and they say, oh, look, dude, if you eat all that chocolate tonight and you smoke that joint and mm-hmm. you do not do your homework, you will fail mm-hmm. school. And that unconscious mm-hmm. primary says, but this feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 I identify with chocolate joints and, and Netflix. <laughs> That's my identification. It also has a sexual dynamic, which is to say that it will not obey the um, speech acts of sexuality that come from the preconscious. So mm-hmm. the preconscious says, I am a heterosexual male. And the unconscious might... might it, when I say say, that's a bad word because it's not volition. The unconscious might give you a charge of sexual um, gratification by looking at John Wayne in the movies. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it, it doesn't, and this is where I agree with Freud in that, in that there's no such thing as uh, um, gay or hetero. There's, there's, there's just pan bisexuality. 
Now, people don't live that out in a pan-bisexual way, typically, but the unconscious is constantly telling the, the pre-conscious, um, you are not who you say you are. Mm. And um, so, mm. so those two engines are constantly, um, it's like they're churning against each other because they're using language in a different way mm-hmm. for a different purpose. The, 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 and I'll stop here. The, the underlying purpose of the preconscious is to delay gratification so you can do the things that make you a successful communal being and get a bigger gratification on the end, like when you graduate from college. Mm-hmm. The unconscious is wanting immediate gratification so that you can delay all pain, but it often results in a greater pain towards the end. These are two, there's a lot more here, but maybe you should direct me as to where you want to go from there. Yeah, no, and I think it's, you know, to to kind of concretize and, and, and you know, bring it back down to the, to the street, uh, you know, for listeners, the, the reason that I wanted to speak about that is because it's the shift between identity and interest, meaning that what we mistake as an identity is actually what we're interested in. It's an interest, right? So that identity, one can never actually really self-identify. That is actually something that comes from the gaze. That is something that it comes from the outside, right? So that is something that is put upon you and what your, um, you know, unconscious is actually getting at. And even if you use words to deny it, right? Like Noam Chomsky speaks about the ways in which language is rarely used to actually communicate and mostly used to obfuscate. So, you know, but, but you're saying I identify, right? So for instance, in the, in the, in the nomenclature of like sexuality, one says, I am heterosexual. That is your quote unquote identity or the way in which you move through the world, but it is actually not who you are. It's actually your interests, right? That actually define. And so that's how you can say you're in heterosexual. And so you, 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 uh, kind of like coagulate and point your quote unquote interest in the direction of heterosexuality. However, there is an unconscious that is beyond your um, your own agency or volition that speaks something different, right? And so I think like that's a frame that really shifted and I think helped me understand a lot of ways in which people's actions just did not line up with what they say. <laughs> like, you know, at a very, very base level. Right. And, and uh, we've all experienced this. I mean, you know, I'm a queer man. And if there's an if I have one more straight man come after me, um, I'm going to be like, I'm going to actually point him to this conversation. <laughs> but like, you know, you, you mentioned growing up, um, you know, you know, in Louisiana, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, maybe formative years in Kenwood, uh, which is a subdivision of Minneapolis which your parents integrated. And so, you know, could you talk a bit about, you know, your parents, which were academics in their own right, and, you know, you being a young Black uh, boy watching your parents integrate a neighborhood, 
you know, how did that shape who you have become? I'm dealing with that now <laughs> in therapy. Yeah. You know, I, I realized that, that um, it's a little scary because uh, every black person has, has a kind of structure of trauma that is um, a structure of trauma that, that, that is pan-blackness. You know, every black person has this. But the particularities of that structured trauma are going to be different whether you grew up in um, Harlem or if you grew up on Museum Mile as a black person. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, from my thesis in uh, at, at Columbia, before I even, when I thought I was a Marxist, but I, I, could, I wrote, read, read part of it back the other day. I read part of it the other day. Uh, and it was really interesting. I had a, a young black woman who, whose father was a very successful painter, living right in Midtown around the museums, you know, so she's got the, the doorman, the, the, the big crib and everything. And then her boyfriend is from Harlem and very poor, you know. And so they have a, their performative life is very, very different. She's sarcastic. She eats at the top of Rockefeller Center. Um, she travels to Morocco and Spain and he's, his mother is domestic and he, you know, he's afraid of a lot of different things. But, this, but they're both extremely anxious beings. Mm. Um, they have a kind of, of, uh, uh, they have a kind of anxiety that's, that if one didn't think I was a constructivist, one would think it was almost in the blood. So I was just always very anxious, um, from 62 to 68. And, Mm. uh, as the book suggests, negotiating the, the well-meaning racism of, you know, rich white people, um, and uh, and then dealing with the aggressivity of of boys, which you know, I don't know if my sister had it better or or, or worse. Uh, you know, I, I went to that school first because she was in kindergarten and uh, Kenwood School, and was it was at a different location. It, it, I know you can't imagine this, but in the nineteen sixties, the the baby boom had exploded to the point where there were uh, Kwanzaa huts at elementary schools to deal with the overflow of grade school children. Mm. That's how, that's, that's what, you know, that's what, that's what baby boomers did to the world, you know, I mean, and, and now we're, now we're baby boomers, we're exploding the retirement industry because we're, you know, (laughs) so, so, so she couldn't, she went to Cambridge school, but was on the other part of the city. And it was, you know, and so I went there the first year of my life, first year of my grade school. And, um, there was always, uh, in your face kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the stuff from the teachers who didn't really know what to, to, to do with me. Um, maybe you could direct me a little bit more to where you would like me to go with this. Cause that's a big, big story. <laughs> Okay, how are you doing? Thank you all so much for joining us today. I have no doubt that this episode is going to stir a lot of conversation, and maybe even controversy, but we are here for all of the difficult conversations. Share some of your thoughts with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. 
be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can now watch it on our YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. One of my favorite quotes is by James Baldwin. And he says, the only way to navigate the world is to know the worst things about it. Stay curious and keep dreaming.